Welcome to Recharting Your Life with Hope. I'm Hope Cook, creator and host. I'm a mom, physician assistant, writer, and life coach. Two years ago, I was feeling stuck, restless, overwhelmed, and I felt like I wasn't where I was supposed to be, but I had no idea what that even meant. And the crazy part is my life had turned out pretty awesome, at least on paper, but I couldn't figure out what was wrong or why I felt out of alignment. A series of books and podcasts and conversations changed my life and revealed my next journey one step at a time. My purpose right now is to help you wake up to your soul's purpose by sharing conversations with amazing women who've walked in your shoes. Keep listening and the answers to your next step will come, I promise. We're all here for a reason, and I'll help you figure out what that is so you don't have to waste another minute sleepwalking through your life. I definitely don't have it all figured out, so I'll also share the ups and downs of my own journey with you. Today, you're going to hear my interview with Dr. Jillian Regert. That's doctor as in dentist, medical doctor, which is oral surgery in her case. And she was a captain in the Air Force. So all very impressive. But what you'll hear that may surprise you is that she suffered with depression, anorexia, and suicidal thoughts. So a warning for any of you um, who may be sensitive to this, she does mention having suicidal ideations or thoughts. Um, But what I want you to get out of this interview is how even when it seems like your life is perfect on the outside, you can be struggling mightily against all those societal expectations and just terrified to pivot and to change your mind and to quit doing something or do something different. Um, So you'll hear about how she struggled with that and then how she finally um, sort of was able to get in alignment and make choices that were the best for her. You also may hear Jillian's, um, she's got a dog, a therapy dog, and you may hear her dog's collar jingling and jangling, and you may hear her dog breathing deeply. That's not Jillian, that's her dog. And he actually does Zoom therapy visits. How cool is that? All right, let's go. Okay, so we're here to, we, we and my team, just kidding, it's just me. I'm here with Dr. Jillian Riegert, not Rigert, Riegert. Jillian has an amazing story, y'all. She is not only a dentist, like she went through the whole dental school, and then she was in an oral medicine residency, and then she also was in the military as a captain in the Air Force, right, Jillian? Mm-hmm. Yep, you're right. Yep. And her story is just going to blow your mind, everything she's gone through to land where she is today. So I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm going to let you tell tell the story. Well, so, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. And, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast with you, Hope. It's, you know, I've, when we met through Wayfinders and had the opportunity to listen to your podcast, I know I reached out and said what a valuable experience that is to be a listener and to hear how deep of a listener you are. So that's a special gift. And I am just honored to be with you. you. And Jillian, like she said, Wayfinders, that's our life coaching program. So we met through that. And there we were just talking about how many different professions are in that group. There's like hundreds of mem- hundreds of people going through the program. And a lot of them are fields where you burn out like lawyers and doctors and PAs and so that's how we met. <laughs> we connected over that. 
yeah, that sounds like a really great theme for this conversation too. Um, you know, it's, I think uh, it's very valuable to hear the stories of other people in that program. And I think hopefully sharing my story will help people that are experiencing burnout or life transitions and maybe looking to get back into their integrity. I know we are, so Wayfinders is Martha Beck's program. And I warned you, my dog is trying to, to uh, oh, that's throw okay. a toy here. So if listeners want to throw a toy while we're talking, uh, that would be helpful for my very playful dog who will also be a valuable part of this story. Um, but yeah, for Wayfinders, it really has seemed to attract people that are seeking and just looking for something that they haven't yet found. And, and that's a, a huge part of what drew me there, but we'll start a little bit more from the beginning. Um, so my traditional path uh, and what I started in my career trajectory was I went to undergrad and I did a kind of a fast track to dental school. I did a three, four program. So my fourth year of my undergrad was actually my first year of dental school. Ah, which also means you're kind of trapped, right? Like you it's go through trapped. that. Well, mentally trapped, right? <laughs> I, I, felt, I felt committed early. And when I committed that first year, you know, that's something I probably would recommend. Yeah, recommend to my nieces now or when I'm talking to my sister, I'm like, I wish I would have just done something that allowed my mind to be open mm -hmm. instead of committing to something my first year, which then left blinders on me. I like, we, I did not entertain other professions. Um, during my undergrad, I had kind of that twinge of, I really was interested in psychology. Um, and I came yeah. from, my father wasn't really, he's not really much, is not much of a mental health advocate person as I am. So that wasn't really in alignment with his vision for me. I love science. I love helping people. And I actually got into dentistry for more of like a psychosocial reason. Yeah. I thought we see people from their face and, and their teeth have a large part of who they see themselves as their self-confidence and things like that. So it's kind of funny, a backdoor way to help people with their confidence. That's true. Yeah, I could see why you wanted to go into that field. Yeah, and I was interested in, I did some research on the cleft lip and palate and I was, you know, just, it seemed so interesting that you could really change a person's life from going into that profession. Yeah. Um, so then in dental school, I was feeling like something wasn't right. And I'm like, I don't know if this is the right profession. And I didn't know what it was. You know, I was always told myself, confidence is really low. It's just your confidence. So it's just a mindset. So, all right, I'll work on it. But every year I'm like, oh my God, I'm failing. Yeah. So did, you, did you start feeling that way your first year or was it first as you year. got, oh. Yeah, first year. And I think it's just really high stress, really uh, competitive environment. It's all new. Mm -hmm. I'm not naturally, or I, I'm not really artistic and dentistry is a lot of hands-on art. art. Um, so I have a lot of self-doubt and I didn't know what it was. What is, what's getting in the way? Um, but then by my first year of, dental school being my last year of undergrad, you just keep going. Yeah. And you've told everybody at that point, like I'm going to dental school. I got in, I'm accepted. And so, yeah, yeah. there's all the societal pressures and family pressures. Yeah. And it really was something that I thought brought great pride. Um, and I, looking back, I don't think, I don't, I think I was giving it more meaning than people in my family were. I think they would have been more than happy for me to do just about anything else, but you're absolutely right. It's that societal pressure of doing something that other people would have high value. And that's the theme again, mm -hmm. in, in this early uh, part of my life, but my first year of dental school was 21 wow. and you're 21 and you're taking out ginormous loans and making these big life trajectory decisions. Yeah. So you powered through. Yeah, you I had huge student loans. 
Yes. And I really wanted to be in the air force. I love military. I'm, you know, very rigid in my thinking and very like I being, we had a base that was pretty close to us. So we had uh, captains and or officers that would rotate in from different specialties. And I loved being around these people uh, in the air force. It's in integrity first uh, service before self and excellence in all you do. That's our core values. And they just glowed those values. So mm-hmm. I really wanted to be in the air force. I knew I didn't Love dentistry, so I wanted to do something else. I love the medical uh, didactics, so I said I want to do whatever I can do to uh, do medicine on top of dentistry and just integrate it because I think it's kind of a disservice that we've segregated those two. You know, medicine mm-hmm. and dentistry are, are more segregated than you know they should be at this time. Um, so oral surgery was the only path I I could go to do both medicine and dentistry together at that at that time that I was aware of. Do you have to go back through four years of medical school or is there like a bridge program? So my program, you had two and some programs have three. So each oral surgery program, but there's four-year programs for oral surgery that don't have medical school and then six-year programs, which is what I did. Oh my gosh, six years after. Yeah, I didn't didn't end up finishing all those six years. I ended up doing just about six years of residency, but- um, but yeah, so I started that path and, um, so we're going back. So I'm in dental school, decided I wanted to be in the air force and that I want to do oral surgery. So the air force, I get so grateful that they select me to do a six year air force sponsored oral surgery program. And at that time they didn't have a six year. So I'd be sponsored to do a civilian program. And ah, okay. yeah, before you start that program, they have you, uh, do one year in the military just to get you used to military, what, what their expectations are, what the lifestyle will be like, um, and get you used to doing a lot of the things that you wouldn't be uh, expected to do in civilian life. We had to do PT tests and get used to, you know, just the check-ins with the commanders and things like that. Um, so after dental school in Illinois, I moved to Texas and I was happy with that because I was sick of Illinois winters for a while. And I was at Lackland Air Force Base where I was a general dentist um, and also a sub-intern in the surgery program. That's a lot. Yeah, so it it was a lot. And that's when I started to really notice. It reminds me of what they say about the arrival fallacy. Like I kept my head down for so long thinking that's all I wanted. And then when I was actually in the role of Air Force going towards oral surgery, I was getting that a lot of the self-doubts and that flood of what did I do? I don't feel like this is right for me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in the, at Lackland practicing dent, dentistry thinking, you know, I was doing my rotations with the oral surgeons and I didn't fit in. I'm a super sensitive person. I love listening to people. And I just felt the residency wasn't a great fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started to develop really severe depression at that time. Cause you've and invested I- so much. I mean, you've moved all the yes. way across the country, or at least many states away. Did you have any family or friends in Texas? No, no. And I didn't have any fr- family or friends in Texas, nor did I have in, in the military, really, no. that I knew about. I mean, maybe like my grandpa was, but I didn't hear a lot. I wasn't used to it. I didn't grow up in the military. Mm-hmm. So that was all new. And again, somebody that wants to get all right, like know it before you learned it type of thing. And I didn't know anything. Yeah. So when I was at Lackland in the oral surgery program, that was the military program. And I met with the board saying, you know, I don't know if I should continue with oral surgery. Yeah. Um, 
And they said, you know what, maybe it's the oral surgery program here. And then maybe it's the Air Force. Like they had a lot of the hierarchy issues, yeah. and all of that, you know, just what you would, what, if you had a stereotypical surgical residency in your mind, that's kind of what it felt like. However, like the attendings were so great. I really valued that experience. Um, but I started to take, when I was a sub intern, we were there two weeks on, two weeks off. And I started to reduce those times because I was like, uh, it was you know, really contributing to a grave depression for me. And I couldn't really pinpoint. I think I could pinpoint. I didn't pause long enough to accept yeah. that oral surgery wasn't the right path for me. And I did buy in a little bit to maybe this program isn't the right program for you. And I wasn't committed to their program. So I was committed to UNC and Chapel Hill's program for oral surgery. And their program was a perfect fit for me. If I loved oral surgery, that would have been a an ideal fit. I'm so grateful. If, if you'd loved oral, if I surgery. Loved oral surgery. Yeah. And I'm so grateful because that helped me determine that it was oral surgery and not the program. Yeah. Like, no, this is oral surgery. Like I do not, I, this is not the right fit for me. Um, but you'd signed up for six years. Even more. So in the military, I signed on for 13 years, but. Oh my gosh. Because what they do is the six year commitment you double that because you pay back the six years yeah. plus one. So my first contract was 13 years. Holy cow. Yeah. No wonder you felt like, so, okay. Tell me about the depression. What did that look like? Uh, depression in the, the first years that I was, that I developed it when I was at Lackland, I just really, it was severe. Um, so not to trigger anybody, but suicidal ideation, severe. Um, and then I had gotten a waiver for anorexia and some of my coping skills from the depression were, behaviors related to my underlying anorexia. And so that I started to like get in trouble with that too, which only makes your uh, further isolation and depression worse if you're not eating, taking care of yourself. Yeah. And so then when I got to UNC and things didn't get better, the, the point, you know, the point that I really started to ask the question is when I was on call and every time I was on call, um, I would really get into a deep suicidal ideation. And finally I was on call, it was like 3 a.m. or something, sitting in the Starbucks with a fifth year resident out of six. I looked at her and I said, when people are on call, do they get suicidal? Because every time I'm on call, I feel suicidal. And she's like, no, no, like, I mean, she didn't say much, but kind of like, no, like that's probably a problem. And then the next day she had told my program director yeah. and uh, my chief had gone with her and I'm, I'm uh, very grateful that they did that because I would never have said anything. Yeah. Never and Jillian, it. don't you think it was, um, I mean, you knew that it was a bad fit and you wanted to get out and it's like your body was, your essential self was like, stop. That's, what it, that's exactly <laughs> what it felt like. Yep. And I eventually did hit such a wall, but in medicine, I felt, so at this time I was reading back in a journal recently from 2014 and it's like the decisions I had made in my mind was I can either commit suicide um, or continue with residency and finish it. Like I thought that if I were to withdraw, it would be such a disappointment to the Air Force and the surgery residency that I would rather have taken my life. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so grateful for that, for that resident bringing it up to the program director because that ended up leading me to this amazing psychologist. I shout out to TJ Rainey. He'll, you know, I can, he'll probably never find this, but you know, <laughs> he, he's still practicing in, in North Carolina and 
just the things he would say to break my mindset. Like, I don't know who the most famous oral surgeon is. And he just showed me, like, I was putting this, this value on oral surgery and what it would mean for my identity. That it was like really a mindset thing. And the things he, he was goofy, but to the point, I mean, I was really, he kept me alive. He just did. And he, the way that he approached it, he was serious, but also funny. So we were a really good fit. And I relied on him a lot um, to keep me going. And my program director was amazing and offered me that holistic care and compassion, not like, oh my God, look at what you're going to leave. If you leave this residency, you have to say, you know, I, he just saw me and they started taking me out of rotations that were exacerbated depression. We're like, we need to get you, you know, help. Um, and so were you also worried about the stigma associated? I know if we like every year when I renew my medical license, they say, have you been treated for any psychiatric condition? And I'm like, ah, does anxiety count? <laughs> absolutely. The stigma and also the military, I was really concerned. It took me a long time to get in because I was getting a waiver for anorexia. Um, and I was really afraid to say anything that would jeopardize. I loved the air force. I I'm wearing a shirt right now. Like that was that was something that I valued so much. Uh, mm-hmm. It was part of my identity as well. And something that yeah. I really fought hard for, like I drove into it knowing uh, how much it meant to me. And so to risk losing everything, like oral surgery, which I had just devoted my whole yeah. life training to get to risk losing the air force. Um, and then, you know, I just was so lost. Um, so I didn't want it. I wasn't ready to leave. So I did take a medical leave and, um, it helped me get to the point where I wasn't so severely depressed, but, um, that I convinced myself it's a great idea to keep going. Yeah. I just and was like, yes, this is great. And the anorexia part of it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a lot of it is, is it about control? Anorexia for me, it definitely had been a lot of control and it was coping with the anxiety. And when I was depressed, I was so depressed that I didn't want to eat because I thought it as like a a way to keep myself alive was nutrition, right? Uh. So I thought, well, why would I feed myself? I was so, I think that eating disorders, this is my perception as a patient, you know, caveat is that I'm not an eating disorder trained provider or healthcare provider. Um, But what I see and, and is true for me is like that self-worth isn't there, that self-compassion wasn't there. I didn't value myself. I had a lot of uh, weight on external validation mm-hmm. and then the depression just added to it. Yeah. It added to it. And uh, yeah, no control was a really big part of that. Mm-hmm. So, so you, okay. So you were, let me get the timeline straight. Okay. You were still in the oral surgery residency. You had not dropped out, but you were seeing this psychiatrist, a psychologist, yeah, a psychologist. And then they were also, um, sort of being careful with where they placed you and they were aware of your depression and you were, you know, getting treated. Yeah. I was going to, uh, to therapy every Monday and, you know, nothing. I think the only things that changed, I was still taking call. And then I was just removed from one rotation that I had already done, and sometimes you do it twice, and it was not, it was one of the environments that was, it was causing me the most distress, just mm-hmm. based off of um, what, you know, the, the circumstances that were there, and, and so removing me from there was fine for them, they were, you know, that wasn't such a loss, and keeping me on call, because that was part of my pride, 
It's yeah. like, well, but again, one of the worst things for me, mm-hmm. uh, for most people, you know, I, I think it's just, I don't hear anyone that's like, yeah, I do great on call. They're like, well, I do call. Maybe it's no, not so detrimental. It's horrible. I only did it like twice on two different rotations. And, um, I just remember we had beepers, you know, and my beeper would go off or pager and I, my stomach would clench. And I was like, no. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the truth. And like, when I was on call, my mindset was that it was, I needed to be there immediately. And I didn't really think through the steps of that person's going to be stabilized in the ER. It was always like they are, their life depends on me getting there immediately. And, um, gosh, that pressure. I put extra pressure on my brain for sure. Yeah. And like, and then it's all new. So I go from dental school to oral surgery where the traumas are a lot higher. Oh gosh. Like, yes. The risks are a lot higher. It's all new. You're afraid to make a mistake. Uh, and, and so then I would have the anticipatory anxiety of being on call, but even on days off, oh. I couldn't rest because then I knew I'd be on call again. And that is crazy. I mean, I just, I can't imagine knowing that I had to do that for 13 years. <laughs> I would have been. Yeah. But I thought, you know, I thought it was just a necessary part of, I don't know, life. And I don't know. I, yeah. I just thought, gosh, people do. It's kind of like when you're in healthcare, I, it's hard to imagine people do anything else. And then on our journey recently, it's like, gosh, people do a whole lot of other things. Right. You get so stuck in the role of like, for me, it was being a PA um, for one of my friends, it was being a lawyer. It's, it's, you just define yourself 100% by that role. And you think, who would I be without that? And identity, speaking of identity, that anorexia was a huge part of an identity problem for me. Um, because, uh, when I was trying to recover, uh, or at least stabilize from anorexia while lo- losing the identity of oral surgery, while losing the air force identity. Um, and then I had an ex-boyfriend I was so in love with that passed away. And I was like losing, I had just felt like the, what is happening? What, but, um, when, when I was in that first year, I would say the defining point where I really started to speak up more was, uh, in oral surgery, we do anesthesia Mm -hmm. uh, rotation. So about five months of anesthesia and you put the controlled substances in your pocket. And like, they always say, you know, gotta be careful for the residents and, and yeah. they tell stories about when they're you know depressed and they can use those medications and instead of thinking I mean I felt strong strong compassion for the residents and the stories that they shared but it was like an idea for me I'm like yeah that's exactly where my brain is at like mm-hmm. hmm, I'm thinking that's a great idea not like oh wow I would never consider that and so at that point I realized just how severe the suicidal thoughts were getting yeah and again like you said stigma and fear of losing your whole career. Um, and I thought I was the only one at this time. I think I'm glad burnout's being more talked about, but I literally thought I was the only one. I thought I was yeah. the weakest person in the world. Um, but I remember calling my program director, uh, manager for the air force and saying like, I think I have to take a medical leave. And he said like, when, and I said, I think, I think yeah. I'm past due, like maybe two days ago. Wow. And I explained the thoughts that were going through my head and the circumstances. And I was on uh, leave the next day, thankfully. Um, Cause Julian, there was, I mean, I think what I hear you saying is there was one part of you that was able to sort of see things objectively and say like this, you're, you're exhibiting not safe behavior. And thank goodness for that little part of us that is able to sort of observe everything. 
I think I actually was just had a really trusting, uh, I trusted my, my psychologist enough. Ah. I didn't, I didn't have that capacity at that time, which is the nerve wracking part. I didn't see it. Okay. So your psychologist was the one who was like, Julian, this is not good. (laughs) Yeah. Like, can we think about this? Sorry, I'm trying to deter my dog. He's, he's, uh, trying to get involved in this story. He's the therapy dog wants to jump up and he's like, this sounds like an awful, that was, I'm sorry that that happened. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if he can detect that you're, um, like going, you know, you're kind of reliving some of these emotions. Yeah. He's, or he just wants the ball, either one. <laughs> we'll give him credit and say he's really amazing, empathic cockapoo. Uh, but yeah, it, it is just was so fascinating. And then what I give a lot of credit to an attending that spoke up to me and said like, me too, like that, you know, I feel the same. This is not just you. Because those moments where people were vulnerable, which is a big reason of why I've decided like someone's going to talk about this, you know, I'm not, I can't risk losing my Air Force oral surgery anymore. Like, what do I have to lose? And I think that's where I got was like, I am suicidal. What do I have to lose by asking for help at this moment? And I never want anyone. And I know too many people get there. um, Yes. And to know, like, I think it's so important because your point was in your mind, I didn't have a rational thought. And that's when people need that embrace, in my opinion, you know, that embrace to get them to a safe spot mm-hmm. without judgment and just hold them until, until, until they, they can activate that. Yeah, part. they can recover. Because I felt that burnout is just so severe and you're just so tired that pushing yourself through it is, it didn't work for me, you know? Yeah, and, it doesn't. I mean, you're just so emotionally depleted and physically drained and you just, you, yeah. I mean, you took the medical leave, which sounds like that was the only option other than ending your life, which thank goodness you chose the former. Yeah. And it, again, I just, when I reflect on it, I can't um, reduce enough the fact that all the people that were surrounding me at that time, how important their influence was like from my pro- program director, uh, really seeing me as a person, which, you know, in workplaces, we hear that doesn't, it's not a, an expectation that you get on yeah. the time. Like you're the body and, um, and he just showed me I mattered. And he would say, you're just missing it. Your confidence is low. Like you don't see it the way you don't see yourself the way I do. Um, and that really helped, you know, I, ne- I didn't believe it, but it gave me maybe confidence that I wasn't seeing things appropriately. Mm-hmm. And you also told me about your, um, I don't know if it was the same psychologist, but you said that when they were, you were getting help for anorexia and all the words and all the things they would tell you that were supposed to be helpful in the, in the moment they weren't, but years later you look back and you're like, yeah. Wow. I really yeah. got a lot of value out of that. Will you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, when we think about the change cycle, when people are ready to hear the uh, in, the things that they need to do in order to change is a lot of times we're maybe not ready for it. It may mm-hmm. look like it's going on deaf ears, but I was yeah. definitely listening. For me, uh, I don't want to speak for everyone with anorexia, but it's kind of like I equate it to an addiction. Yeah. You know, like you can see the detriments that it has in your life, but in the acute setting, what you're doing makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. And so I would listen to this psychologist and, it, and he was mainly, he did, he did specialize in eating disorders, but he was primarily keeping me safe, you know, he was really mm-hmm. focused on not pressing 
too far with the depression being such the prominent um, issue. But I do think it was, I, if I hadn't started treatment for my eating disorder, depression, the depression would have been resistant to anything because that malnourishment mm. came into a big play Yeah, um, for confounding. So how long was your medical leave for? I think it was 12 weeks, whatever is the FMLA, okay. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that was. Um, yeah, just, it was, you know, and it was not enough. I, I was still on the fence. So yeah, was, as the days approached that you were supposed oh, to go back, God. what was that yeah. like? Well, fortunately, when I came back, I was starting medical school. Um, and during my medical leave, I had to take the USMLE step one in order to, to get Dang. into medical school. I don't recall. I'm, I'm surprised. You know, I was definitely not in the great, greatest frame of mind um, to take an exam that day. But, <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, and I didn't do that great on it, but I did pass it. And then I look back, I'm like, man, you know, you're like, I could have done better had I, oh, whatever. Like, had, <laughs> had I not, I not been, been, you know, <laughs> on the brink of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But they, they, they tell the medical students it's so important to do extremely well on that USMLE step one. And here I am like, well, I guess I'll take it and just hope for this. And wow. oh, man. And now, yeah, I don't know. I thought I failed it. So I was like, why am I even starting med school rotation? I'm just going to get my grade back and it's going to, you know, catastrophic thinking. Yeah. Like, surely didn't pass that. I have no, there's in medical school, that exam was so different than any sort of board exam I've ever taken in dentistry. They're just, they're, they're just different in the way that they ask the questions and yeah. the they provide. Yeah. Wow. So you passed it, you started med school or med yes. medical classes, medical I guess. School. Yeah. I started medical school. We started in third and fourth. So we do the third and fourth uh, years, which are clinical only. Um, so I started in pediatrics okay. and it was great because it was like a walk right from my apartment. So it was just kind of ease you in for one of the clinics. Yeah. And I laugh about it. It gave me, I mean, they were there for me. They were a, a group of very supportive women. And I was just laughing because I had one patient that came in with a rash and the doctor goes, what's in your differential? And I look at it, and I go rash. <laughs> <laughs> and it was on the hands. So you think hand, foot and mouth or else it's an STD and you hope it's not that, but I was like, <laughs> she, you know, she laughed with me. <laughs> and he's like, I know you just, we were so focused on making sure that the USMLE went okay. And I thought she has to think I'm the dumbest person alive. And that narrative went through my head for like the rest of my medical career or oh. medical schooling. And then I ran into her again. She was all excited to see me. I'm like, you don't think I'm the stupidest person alive? She's like, you know, I'm like, cause, but yeah. So I loved, I think what really helps, I loved all rotations in medical school. I think surgery was the exception because I was equating it to what I had just experienced. It had from day one of surgery. I'm like, this is not like, I, I don't know if I can do this rotation Yeah. Um, because of how it was relating to my experience as an intern. And mm -hmm. I had just started to develop a lot of anxiety about surgery. Yeah. I think, yeah, that makes total sense. So yeah. you, you made it through the two years. So I made it through the two years and in my third year, um, so in the first year I was in the medical school, but the third year of medical school, I knew I'd gotten at a point with my eating disorder that I needed a higher level of care. So my doctors had me go to a residential treatment facility and like they put you in the hospital. I went, yeah, I went to Utah. It was a facility that's associated with TRICARE. Okay. And I get there and I'm not yet ready, committed in my mind to like change. Oh um, gosh. 
and they couldn't keep me because my heart rate went into the 20s every night and I didn't notice like it didn't what? felt fine yeah I did felt fine but I could see it on the monitor so they said we're not medically equipped even though they had you know said that they yeah. were another thing that I speak out about and like just we have to be mindful we can't I flew all the way from North Carolina to Utah and it was a really frustrating I yes to let the Air Force know like that's not a good relationship to have if they are saying we take care of really sick people that need residential treatment but oh you're too sick like well then tell me that ask for my vitals before I come because surely that's that was no secret when I was, when I was awake, I had bradycardia. It's, you know, wow. it's pretty low. And then when I slept, it was in the twenties. So they had me go to a medical um, hospital overnight and they're like, it's related to malnourishment. When she walks, it goes really high. It looks uh, like it's responding to just like somebody is what if they're extremely malnourished um, and not to trigger anybody with an eating disorder because labs can be fine. Heart rate can be fine. That's not too. Yeah reduce suffering with an eating disorder. That's a mental health illness. And mine just happened to then lead to medical complications. Mm -hmm. But again, it doesn't mean I'm sicker or needed or more um, worthy of treatment. I would always say if anyone's dealing with that mental health of an eating disorder, please seek treatment. Yeah. Don't think like, oh, when my body does this, because I still didn't think I was sick enough. Um, but I did it anyway. So I go into that medical hospital and then I go back to the residential treatment center and they say, well, we can't keep you overnight because your heart rate in the 20. So they sent me back to the medical hospital. And at that point I was like, this is not going to help be helpful. So I got discharged and went back to North Carolina and that decision to seek the higher level of care of what started my medical board evaluation to get out of the military, which like super devastated me because what they said is you went to a higher level of care and didn't get better. I'm like, well, I wasn't oh. there for two days. And so I was so heartbroken and I felt like, you know, you're depressed and can't fight. And you're yes. like, well, so that started my third year as the medical evaluation board. And I was wow. hearing from my commanders. They're like, you're performing super well. You, you know, you're going to be fine. As, as long as we can get you medically stabilized and recovered. I, there's no way they're going to kick you out. You've got a DMD. You're going to have an MD and you're performing really well professionally. Did you almost want to get kicked out though? Like was part of you like, please, like I'm, I'm dying inside. Like, I, yeah, I'm performing well, but. It's yeah. Um, when I went to my appeal, so I wanted to stay in the air force, but exactly what you're saying, like you have that part of your heart that's so, so burdened with grief. And so when I had, so I'll, I'll try to do a little bit more stepwise to get exactly to what you're saying, just to try to keep it organized, but in my head, um, for, so that was my third year. And then my fourth year, um, that medical evaluation board is a long process. It's still happening. So I decided to continue with the rest of my medical school, not knowing if they were going to pull me out at any point um, in the best of it with anorexia getting worse um, because I have no control now. Now I know I'm in the medical board. I don't have any control over any aspect of my air force at that time. Like the things I could control, I did like submitting paperwork, submitting my preferences to stay in and be retained. Um, and I was, you know, in, when I'm thinking about like, did I have enough of a fight in order to get healthy enough to show them that I was okay? I think that's exactly to your point. It was like, I couldn't, I didn't have the energy, no matter how much I wanted the air force at that time. I just want needed, I was on survival mode. Mm -hmm. So to go to an appeal and, and confidently say, oh, I'm going to be a great officer for you. I'm not going to fall victim of 
whatever this is, you know, and I shouldn't say victim, but, um, you know, you're just trying to like pull, trying to, to have some armor up and say, I'm going to be great. And yeah. I, I won't ever relapse. I'm like, no, I've proven to myself that I'm not, I'm not sure how long this will last. I've never, since depression was pretty new for me, you know, I'm like, I don't know what to expect. Yeah. I knew a little bit more about recovering from that. And, Mm -hmm. and I didn't really see that as, I don't know. I, it's what I say, I don't know, because I want to be cautious with anorexia because I can't trust necessarily my insight and my impression of how it would affect me. Um, easier to see in others you know yeah no that's true yeah I could appreciate at that time that I had gotten I had gotten more trapped into my eating disorder than I ever would have imagined I would have gotten back into and how about how old were you at that time um 28 okay yeah all right so did the medical board ever come to a decision yeah so um is my fourth year of medical school they're deciding they decide that I'm probably not going to be retained. I'm trying to figure out exactly what they communicated to me, um, but I kept appealing. So I, it was like, yeah. no, but then I appealed. So I appealed as far as I could yeah. uh, to stay in. And what that looked like for me is in my fourth year, I ended up going to UNC's um, inpatient unit for anorexia with the mindset that like, if I'm going to fight for the rest of my life and know what I need to do for the air force, mm-hmm. I was going for an in-person appeal. I'm like, I need to have the right, like my mind has to be healthy and I have to do anything I can to get physically well. And of course, mentally, I thought it would, it would need the physical at that time yeah. in order to start the mental work. And so I went into UNC's inpatient unit and got medically stabilized for my eating disorder And then that was in April of 2017. And a couple of weeks later, I was in person in San Antonio appealing for the rest of my career. It was literally like two weeks later or something like that. I remember being so afraid that I wasn't going to get discharged in time to go to my appeal. Oh gosh, yeah. But while I was inpatient, I was communicating with a wonderful doctor in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm like, it, you know, I may or may not be getting discharged from the military. And we were, some of my um, dental colleagues were helping me to look for options just in case I was uh, kicked out. Because at that point, my program director and I said, you know, you could stay in oral surgery, but if you get kicked out from the air or from the air force, like, do you want to, and what what was that look like for you? And, um, and then the next year, if I were to stay in oral surgery would have been general surgery, which is all it's known to be a very challenging year. So it's like, I don't see myself not repeating this behavior or pattern that I'm on if I stay. Um, but so many unknowns, right. Cause then everything that I knew I had planned for in my life was just it was, um, it was all being shaken. I'm sure you had no yeah. idea where you would be a year later. No. And, and the one event in my life that I, I think of anytime someone is talking about being on call and like making decisions and trying to reprioritize their, their time with family is, um, my ex-boyfriend that I was still madly in love with, um, he called to check up on me because I think mm-hmm. his dad had told him or some, he knew that I was really struggling with depression. 
and I had just been on call um, for quite a few days before that. So I was so tired and called me at night and like, well, I can call him in the morning, you know, and that's unlike me. Anytime I saw his name on my phone, I'd be hopping around. Yeah. Um, and I can still see like that moment. I decided I had just taken melatonin to help me sleep and uh, calm my restless mind. And I thought, oh, I'll text him in the morning. So I did. I didn't, the next text I got, it was uh, from his sister that had told me he had passed away on that Sunday unexpectedly. And that amount of anger you have from the grief process, it was like, I was so mad at myself for here I am, you know, spending all this time and not, I'm not able to communicate with people that I love because I'm in a profession and doing things that aren't even in line with what are bringing value to, you know, my life at the time. I don't know how to explain it, but I was just really feeling really angry um, at myself and life. (laughs) Sounds like that was one of those pivotal moments that just, it forever changes you and Mm-hmm. That was my pivotal moment. Anytime I make life decisions um, to this day, I weigh it. Mm-hmm. How do I want to feel if I'm in a moment like that? Can I answer the phone for a person I love? It's certainly how I measure mm-hmm. most of my decisions. So, um, and I love, my dog is named after him, Reese Griffin. Um, and, and my ex was Blake Griffin. And he is such, you know, I, I try to honor his life because he just means so much to me. And I knew him for such a short period of his life and my life. So just for how much he touched me in the short time that we knew each other, because we dated in dental school, um, that profound impact that a person can have Mm -hmm. uh, and just that value of connection and being with people you love. I think that's just kind of what I was figuring out I was missing, especially with the military. It separates you a lot from the people you love. I can see how that can be so detrimental on the mental health um yeah so so that moment is uh painful you know as as it it was for what happened um it really has shaped a lot of of the decisions um and the way that I advocate for others to Mm -hmm. you know that, that reach out for how do I how do I how do I decide and uh it's funny like I showed you, I gave you a little brief shot of what my apartment exists of mostly nothing. Cause I'm like, well, you just know what values that you have and what matters and what doesn't. And yeah. So that helped me to feel confident that I would leave oral surgery. It helped yeah. me to feel comfortable and to not fight as hard. I think to stay in the air force when I had doubts, mm-hmm. um, especially with anorexia that, that you were talking about that control thing and, and the air force, you have a lot of a military in general, a lot less control of, of your life in terms of where you live and what happens. Um, and there's a lot of pressure, uh, regarding the weight and the fitness. So it typically yeah. has, and a lot of the people that go into the military are, have that mindset and maybe some, um, pre-existing vulnerabilities to developing eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So I knew it may be harder if I stayed in that culture uh, to step away and, and have a massive reset in my life. Yeah. How did you feel when you made that decision? Did it feel like, was it an immediate, like, yes, this is the right decision or did you struggle with it for a while? Nope. So I'll tell you when I, I didn't, I didn't stop long enough to really process it. Okay. I got out of the air force. I was discharged on October 29th. 
2017. And I started oral medicine residency, my next residency, the oh day after October 30th. Um, I wasn't ready. We talked a little bit about the change cycle. I was not ready to mm-hmm. process everything that had happened. And thankfully, and I feel um, very fortunate, but also like, oh gosh, these people went through a lot with me, but that next residency that I went at, it was like a gift of people that were like helping me <laughs> just help. Yeah. I just feel like I came like help me, you know? No, I mean, it sounds like they were placed there, like your, your fairy godmothers or godfathers. Exactly. <laughs> You're exactly right. Um, they really, just the people I am thinking about them all now and each one is so they're so valuable oral medicine in general uh, the specialty has just been a really great group of people um and when I go to the meetings I'm like hmm, these you know we talk about things we nerd out I'm like actually this kind of feels like I have a lot in common with these you know these individuals and and they were just so ready to help me to find another place that was better like and what what can you do? You know, like, um, this sounds really great. And, you know, they, they gave me confidence in my abilities when, again, you you don't have it. They're like, you're going to rock here. And I'm like, but I feel like I'm going to fail. You're going to rock. Like, this is amazing. You're so well qualified. I'm like, in my head, I'm a failure, but you're telling me I'm really, you know, I'm doing pretty okay. You think highly and I think lowly. So how do we find in between, like, what's the reality here? And at some point I just was like, okay, well, I know I need to finish a residency and I need, I didn't need to in dentistry, you can go back to dentistry, but I'm like, I knew for me, I wanted to do this residency. It was an integration of medicine and dentistry, which was on like, yes, that's exactly what I, what yeah. I just came out of. I didn't know it existed when I was choosing oral surgery. I Oral medicine has just recently become um, a specialty in dentistry, a recognized specialty. It's existed for a lot longer, but it's now recognized as an official specialty of dentistry. So when I was leaving oral surgery, no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I did oral, oral medicine residency from 2017 and 19. Um, and I feel like I tried to work through burnout. I, I mean, I don't think... I was processing things and I, from a personal standpoint, I look back, I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) you know, like wasn't yet recovering from anything. Um, But I did graduate from oral medicine, love the people and was finding more of a niche. Like, I feel like, oh, I can do great service for these people that I'm seeing. I specifically had connection with cancer patients and people kind of like when I was in Utah by myself dealing with my medical uh, situation from anorexia and was alone I would sit there and be like this sucks to be alone in the hospital I know and cancer is you know a challenging diagnosis and and sometimes people you know it's hard with your loved one like how do I what what do I say and and I felt like for me with anorexia people often were so afraid to say the wrong thing that they didn't talk to me at all which is understandable for me but when it comes like illnesses that cause people to kind of retract a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and to see people isolated in their most vulnerable times. It's like, I really felt what I went through, um, especially if, if, you know, not just cancer, but any diagnosis or any treatment or end of life situation where it's age or anything related, I just felt like the depression and sitting with having to ask myself, why do I want to commit to life every single day? Like I would talk myself into living every single day and yeah. like, 
it gave that meaning of just sitting and, and being okay with talking about life and death. Yeah. Um, so when you have patients who are dealing with like life-threatening oral cancers or neck cancers, then what you're saying is you're able to kind of connect with them on a more personal level, would you say? I feel like the value uh, I hope to provide to them is the ability to listen because I understand I'll never understand what they're feeling and experiencing, but I know the value of someone that truly cares to listen and to be there. Like I, like I mentioned with your podcast, that listening is amazing, you know, (laughs) and we often miss that because Uh of the hustle bustle, the time constraints. And I just want to be able to listen and to see that person and to hear what they they need. There was a, a family medicine provider in my medical school that I just loved what he did. He would go and he would sit with stage four cancer patients. And he said, how can I help you? Like that was his role for a consultation. Like what questions do you have? How can I help you? Oh. And I was like, I just valued that. You know, yeah. a lot of the times it's saying, can I take this vitamin with my medication, with my cancer medication, or, you know, those things that were very valuable to the patient because it was within their control, Mm -hmm. um, something that they can feel tangible. That was, um, something that they wanted to really discuss. It was extremely important to them. And and how often do we get the chance to listen to what's important, you know, to the patient? What a gift. Yeah. My dad had in the last couple of years, parotid cancer Mm -hmm. Had to have this huge surgery, you know, that lasted hours. And, um, but that was, I think just, if he had had the gift of somebody who'd said, you know, like, what are your questions? What, what do you need to know? Um, and not being in the medical field, I mean, I think he felt kind of lost and like told what to do. So I think you're yeah. providing a huge gift, Jillian. Well, I appreciate it. that was one thing, you know, I know it's, it's a, a skill. I feel like we really have to be intentional about learning. And it's something that I, well, you know, I'm, I'm really devoted to trying to be a better listener. I think that was one of my biggest reasons for joining Wayfinders. I'm like, no matter what I do with coaching, I just want to be better for my patients. I want to be able to walk with them better and add mm-hmm. value to their lives in a way that maybe I'm paper from what we can't necessarily offer in medical treatment. Um, so that was, you know, that was a huge calling for me when I found Wayfinders and what brought me into that role. Mm -hmm. And just looking at how your experience, I mean, from sitting in the hospital all alone and wishing somebody was there to ask you these questions and listen to, uh, you know, your life choices, just debating, like, what do I do with my life? Do I do what is expected and what I've signed up for? Or do I have the courage to pivot and say, this is not the path for me? And yeah. just, I see, I see all of that now. Yeah. Pivot and like pivot into such an unknown. It's so, as a person that was very planned and like rigid in my thinking, which is actually, you know, I grew up with a very perfectionistic mindset. And at the time it was championed as something desirable. And now I've learned how we yes. shouldn't, be, we should not be celebrating perfectionist mindsets because it made me so inflexible with my thought process, like I was so rigid that then to be pushed to think outside the box is not, it was not natural to me at the time. And to like yeah. honor the fact that just because I pivot, does it mean that makes me, it, it, that's what it is on paper. Like you pivoted, 
period. Like what judgment are you giving that? You know, and I gave it a lot of judgment. Um, and I still do. There's days where I feel regret, uh, not regret per se, but question like, should I finish what I started in oral surgery? I'm like, no, absolutely not. But it's that, it's that feeling of you left something unfinished. Yeah. That sits so poorly with our ego part. Don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Yes. A hundred percent. I'm like, what is this? It's like 99% of the time I know this this is the right decision. Um, I don't regret doing oral surgery. I'm so grateful for everything. The med school was amazing in terms of the people. I'm just so grateful for every step of the way. Um, because every component of that journey has contributed to what I'm, you know, what you are doing now, whether you've learned, you don't want to do things or you do and what takeaways you can have. I think every step is so valuable. Mm -hmm. If you could go back and give yourself advice when you were in your twenties and you'd started medical school and you like see the writing on the wall, like this is not for me. Yeah. Like, what would you tell yourself? Um, at that time, I probably would have been more open to exploring when I was getting positive feedback in other rotations, uh, and just given permission to pivot. That's all I needed is permission. And other people gave it to me and I didn't accept it. I was like, no, like yeah. I can't, I cannot entertain going off path. Um, yeah, it's just, that's a, that's such a beautiful point. I looking for permission outside of yourself. I mean, that that's something when I was going through burnout, like I remember reading books and listening to podcasts and I talked to one therapist and then another therapist. I just wanted somebody to give me permission, like yeah, burned out, you need a break. Um, you can't keep going like this. That's yeah. And, and that's a great point for what I, you know, I have a lot of people that will come up to me knowing I did oral surgery and that I was an attending at a, um, in a department last year that had quite, we were really closely knit with oral surgery and a lot of the residents were interested in oral surgery. So they would ask for my advice and I go, the one thing I wish I would have done is ask for all the advice, gather all the information that you feel you need to make the decision, but then go on, go off on your own and your sabbatical and sit with it for yourself. How does it feel to yourself without that external pressure? And if no one knows, if no one ever found out what career you chose, what would you choose? Yeah. Yeah. If you weren't doing this for fame or fortune or Facebook likes or whatever, what would you do? Absolutely. Like, what would you do? Um, Cause that's the one thing, you know, and then of course, like what I'm glad happened to me without me really. So with depression and anorexia, they're very isolating. And I'm grateful that I had a community that was there um, and that's the one thing I just, I would strongly recommend is like having a community of people that are so supportive, surround yourself with the people that make you better versions of yourself and make other people versions, you know, the best versions of themselves. Just be so supportive of one another. The world is challenging enough. Mm-hmm. Um, cause in surgery, I, I, I had the inner critic of I, I'm horrible. I am a failure. And so then I would have, if I had an attending that kind of taught for that, like, I'm going to break you down so that you'll build yourself back yeah. up. You know, sometimes that works for people, but for me, I already had that inner clinic in my head. Yeah. Um, so I needed a different approach, uh, at that time, you know, I didn't need to be coddled, but maybe just give me to see, to see the mentee, right. How they, yeah. and meet them where they're at. Just that encouragement. Your words have just 
Oh, lit a fire in me. I feel so honored that you shared your story with us and the courage to like, just lay it all out there. So thank you. I I appreciate the opportunity. And again, it's, I think the value of just hearing people aren't alone. I think that's ultimately. Exactly. Tell people where they can find you. I know you have a website. I do have a website. Please give it an A++. It will reflect (laughs) very minimalistic. And I'm a coach, not a website designer, but uh, it's jillianrigertcoaching.com. That's R-I-G-E-R-T. R-I-G-E-R-T. And then of course, LinkedIn is always a great place to, to find me as well. Yes. Thank you. And y'all go check her out. And uh, yeah, I appreciate this so much. I appreciate it. Loved hearing from Dr. Jillian, didn't y'all? Okay. If you want her to come back and talk about um, specific ways that you can pivot, if you're feeling like you're out of alignment, please send me a DM at coachhopecook.com or send me an email, hope.cook at gmail.com. All right. The take-home points from today's interview. Number one, societal pressures can trap us into being terrified to pivot. Pay attention to those feelings of something not being a good fit. This is not all in your head. It's your body trying to tell you. Number two, be careful of the arrival fallacy. This is when you just keep your head down and you keep moving forward and thinking that one day you'll be happy when you get X, Y, or Z accomplished or when that happens or you finish this. Number three, notice if your mind is telling you there are only two options, especially if one is especially if neither one is healthy or good for you. This is your mind making stuff up and tricking you into thinking the situation is hopeless. Number four, when you're so afraid of being a disappointment to people that you would consider taking your own life or suffering in some other way, this is a red flag to get help. Number five, we put an insane value on professions and degrees, even when they trump our health and mental well-being. These jobs and titles become part of our identity, and we just won't let go of them, even if our health and our lives are at stake. Lastly, Number six, sit with decisions all on your own. Ask yourself if no one ever knew what you would decide, if you didn't have that external validation that you're aiming for, if you didn't have um, a way to post it so people could see what your decision is, what would your heart tell you to do? Thank y'all for listening. It was so much fun talking to you today. All right, if you are ready to make some major changes in your life, if you're at the point where you are sick and tired of feeling stuck and directionless and you really don't know what to do next or where to go, maybe it's time we had a little chat. So I have it set up on my website. You can schedule a free 30-minute discovery call and we'll sit down and decide if we're a good fit. Maybe you'd prefer group coaching. Maybe you need one-on-one coaching or maybe you just want to talk and and say hello. So go on over to my website. It's coachhopecook.com. That's H-O-P-E-C-O-O-K.com and schedule the free discovery call. And I can't wait to talk to you. So See you next week, and hopefully I'll talk to some of you before that.